Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I want to talk about the Old Testament and use this as a basic paper for for others, a building block in terms of the Old Testament and its view of uh, disease. The Old Testament clearly recognizes negative aspects in human experience. They can be subsumed under three, three headings, sin, suffering, and death. Disease, as we think of it, comes under the second of these. The Old Testament is unable to conceive of disease as either pleasant or even neutral. It is to be avoided if possible. Always it is to be lamented. There are several premises that underlie all of the Old Testament literature. These are assumed throughout. Unless they are understood, the ambiguities of language may mislead the casual reader. First, God is ultimately responsible for all that exists. Man, all that he knows, and all that he directly or indirectly experiences, finds its original cause in God. This obviously is a corollary of the Old Testament doctrine of creation, or as we often say, creatio ex nihilo. There is only one God for the Old Testament. If the word G-O-D-S appears in the Old Testament, as someone has suggested, you cannot consider it a plural of the word capital G-O-D. Since God, with a capital G, exists alone and there is none other beside him, he is the one who created all that is, and even the G-O-D-S with the little g, all of them that others worship were created by Yahweh. Psalm 121, which many of us learned in Sunday school and learned as a nature psalm, is illustrative. The problem for the writer in Psalm 121 is where to go for help. His Canaanite neighbor goes to the highest hilltop, and there he seeks the aid of his favorite deities. These were always nature deities, such as the sun, the moon, the heavens, and the earth. And if you remember Psalm 121, you will remember the references in Psalm 121 too, the sun and the moon, the heavens and the earth. But the Hebrew, when he looked for help, if he was a devout Hebrew, 
did not choose to seek the deities that were worshipped throughout the rest of the ancient Near East. He sought one named Yahweh, whom he claimed to be the maker of the natural forces to whom his Canaanite neighbor turned when he needed help. This must have been the rankest of religious triumphalism to Israel's neighbors. But to the believing Hebrew, it was simply the way things are. There is no other ultimate origin for anything except Yahweh. He alone was self-originating. This theme is ever-present in the Old Testament. Isaiah expresses it again and again and perhaps expresses it most dramatically. Yahweh is the Lord and beside him there is no other. Little wonder that Yahweh's sovereignty for Isaiah could never be challenged. There is no one else in Yahweh's class. All beings and forces are created by him and are dependent upon him from the serpent in Genesis 3 to the Satan of Job or to any of the other negative forces that may exist. They all came from his hand and they all exist under his hand. Second corollary. The inescapable corollary of this is, if we accept the biblical contention that Yahweh is good and that he is holy, is that evil, wherever you find it, is either good gone wrong or the result of good gone wrong. Since God is good of pure eyes and to behold iniquity, as Habakkuk says, all originally was as Genesis 1.31 says at the climax of the first chapter of Genesis, the creation story, and God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. The significance of this should not be lost on us. Nothing is morally evil in itself except a morally evil decision and that which proceeds from it. And then, even the decider in his original essence was good. Our problems come from misuse of the good, whether it is freedom, which on the one hand is our glory and on the other is our curse, or whether it is human sexuality, which can be the most sacred of human joys, or it can be perhaps as corrupting an influence as we can find, power, which can be an incredible good when rightly used, or demonic when wrongly used, 
or even wealth. A thing's potential for evil seems to be in direct relation to its original goodness. Here Milton is very biblical when he pictures the devil as angels who have fallen. A third corollary. Man is a unity. The Old Testament originated in a world that produced numerous dualisms. Platonism, Gnosticism, Zoroastrianism. But all of these are alien to and antithetical to the Old Testament. Categories such as flesh and spirit, matter and mind, body and soul, may be used for analytical purposes. The idea that such a separation between these, though, is abhorrent to the Old Testament mind. That is why death is looked upon as such a tragedy. The thought that you could separate body and spirit or body and whatever the immaterial part of man is, that is always abhorrent in the Old Testament. The most violent form of uncleanness that can be found in the Old Testament is death. It was never meant to be. When Yahweh formed man from the dust of the earth, an inert mass that through the infusion of the breath of life became man, he had made a creature in which the union of the material and the immaterial was supposed to be permanent. This is so assumed in the Old Testament that a passage like John 14, which fits so well in the New Testament, would be strangely out of place if you found it tucked away in the Old Testament. Separation of flesh and spirit was tragedy that must ultimately be reversed. So it is no accident that resurrection is the outcome of the thought of the Old Testament not immortality in the Greek sense. This unity of man was seen as so actual that to touch a part of a man was to touch the whole. The relationship of the physical and the non-physical was one of continual interdependence and continual exchange. A problem for man in any segment of his being affected the, the whole. The modern West approaches man with very different categories. We may draw hard lines between the physical and the non-physical. We may speak of guilt as mental or spiritual. But if you read the literature of the Old Testament, you will find 
that the Old Testament sees it normally as having physical accompaniment and physical manifestation. The psalmist is awed by what seems for him the inevitable, inexorable physical accompaniment of guilt. He speaks of his bones wasting. He speaks of his strength as being sad. And he speaks of a load of anguish afflicting him so that it leaves him groaning all the day. You will remember the reference in Psalm 32. Now, fourth parallel. Hebrew thought is thus, in its completeness, holistic. The Hebrew mind did not so clearly separate cause and effect, or act and consequence, or even deed and inevitable accompaniment the way we do. Categories such as Aristotle's five causes which have been so useful to intellectuals, to philosophical thinkers in the West, were not a part of Hebrew thought. Pars prototo was common and seemed very logical to the Hebrew. If a chain was unbreakable, the sequence could be thought of as a whole and a reference to a part might well be a reference to the whole. The Western tendency to analysis with its fine distinctions is not commonly reflected in the Old Testament. I do not believe that it was that they could not make such distinctions. I think they were as intelligent as we but it seems that such distinctions were not really useful to them. This tendency to see the interrelatedness of things is illustrated in their view of sin and suffering and death. Ultimately, the whole negative picture was one. Suffering and death are the result of man's sin. When man sinned originally, nothing was left unchanged. All human existence was affected negatively. A corrosive element had now been introduced that manifested itself in pain and suffering and death. Man's own person was affected negatively. His family relationship and his larger social, personal relationship were all poisoned. Even nature itself was under a blight and man's relationship to nature plagued. A dark shadow with destructive effect now fell over all. The reason? Very simply. Man had turned away from his source. 
This line of thought is illustrated in the Old Testament use of one of its major verbal roots, the triliteral resh ayin ayin ra'ah, which is used to designate evil. I think you probably know enough to know that in the Semitic languages, the great mass of the vocabulary is based on a set of roots that have three letters to them with a consonant prefixed or suffixed or infixed you can you can develop. Hebrew would be beautiful on a computer. It would work extremely well on a computer. Arabic even better. But in this way, you will get a root that will have a whole succession of words that are derived from it that come from a central idea. It's uh, fascinating to see how they work out sometimes, like the word for inside you, within you, is the word, uh, and for close and for near, is the word kerev. They get the word war from that, because you can't hit a fellow that isn't close to you. So it's interesting the way they, they, they develop, but if you study them, they all come from a basic idea and a basic root. Now this word, ra'ah, one feminine noun taken from that root collectively can be used to denote the sum of all the distressing happenings of life. But now note what its base meaning is. I think its base meaning can be found in Genesis 6 or Genesis 13. These texts reflect that root meaning. In the first, Genesis 6, 5, it is used twice in the same verse to indicate the moral corruption of the pre-Diluvian world which precipitated the flood. The text says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. In the King James, it says, The thoughts and imaginations of his heart were evil and evil only. Now, the word there is wrath. And then the Hebrew word only, rack, rack, only evil, only rack. Used first for wickedness and then for evil in that text. The second reference in chapter 13, verse 13, is in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The NIV translates verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The city is seen as so wicked that God has no option for it but to destroy it. The base idea, as you see in these two texts, is evil that in one case was of such dimension that it brought the flood, and in the other that it evoked fire and brimstone. Yet the preceding cannot determine every occurrence of this root or its derivatives. It comes in the Old Testament to be applicable to all of the unfortunate 
accompaniment of man's fall. Take a number of instances. In Genesis 28.8, the root is used when Esau realizes that Isaac finds the Canaanite women around them, quote, displeasing as potential daughters-in-law. Isaac didn't want his son marrying a Canaanite woman because she was wrath. And about all you can say is, not because of moral evil, it's the complications that would come. So they were displeasing. Jacob tells Pharaoh in Genesis 47.9 that his years have been few and difficult, is the NIV translation. Few and evil, wrath. But what the translation, best translation the NIV translators felt was difficult. Cattle, which Pharaoh sees coming up out of the Nile in his dream, you remember the lean and hungry cattle, are, the NIV translates, ugly. When one is choosing which of two animals to sacrifice to Yahweh, he should never offer the rat one, the bad one. A place can be, quote, terrible for dwelling, Numbers 25. Water can be bad for drinking, 2 Kings 2.19. Figs can be poor for eating, Jeremiah 24.2. Every instance is the word rat. The fact is that a derivative of this root, ra'ah, can be found in the Old Testament somewhere to describe almost any experience which man finds negative. So it seems to me that it is all one interconnected web. And it all began when man turned his back on his source, his origin, on Yahweh. In Deuteronomy, Moses speaks and says, Behold, I set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing, good and wrath. Toe and wrath. Those were the options in life. It is obvious that the Old Testament sees all of life's negatives then as having religious implications. We may differentiate between the secular and the sacred, between the moral and the non-moral. We may draw a line between moral evil and natural evil, as we call it. But the Hebrew would have difficulty with that. What we call the secular, he knew to have had a, a sacred origin. And what we see as amoral, he sees as having potential moral significance. Evil, whether natural as we define it, or moral, was still to him evil. In fact, all of life is morally conditioned because it has its origin in the one whom the Hebrew 
called the Holy One. In the prophets you will find several times three great curses listed. One is the sword, one is famine, and one is plague. These are often listed together. Now you will note that the sword, military defeat, is a political factor. Famine is natural disaster. Plague is physical disease in our category. But all of these can be looked upon by the prophet as the obvious signs of religious failure. So, you see, the Old Testament is very holistic in its approach to life. There are some corollaries that seem to go with what we've said up to now. The tragic elements in man's life have come from the loss of the face of God immediately out of his life. Does that mean, and I am jumping some because of our lack of time, does that mean then if all of the negative elements have come because we've lost his faith out of our lives, man turned his back and turned away from him, and these things came, does that mean that the reappearance of the living God, the living presence of God in man's life would reverse the process and restore his well-being? The Old Testament says a very clear yes to that. That seems to me to be a further indication of the argument that it is all a package and that it is all a whole. You will find this in the eschatological hope expressed in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament is it ever suggested that man can solve his own problem alone, nor that he can ever escape from his own dilemmas through his efforts. Escape, though, will come, and deliverance will come. It will come when Yahweh comes to his people. Isaiah saw this. In the 35th chapter, it is expressed as beautifully, I think, as anywhere in the Old Testament. Let me just cite it for you and urge you to look at it. If you will look at it, you will recognize some of these things as I read them. Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. And it goes on. Magnificent poetry. But now notice what's being said. The desert, which to the Hebrew was a place negative, conceived negatively, is to rejoice. The wilderness, which was also 
a negative element, is to blossom. The feeble are to become strong. The weak are to become steady. Sight is to be restored to the blind. Hearing is to be given to the deaf. The lame will leap and the dumb will shout. Streams will be found in the desert. No beasts will threaten anyone there. Sorrow and sighing will have fled, only to be replaced by joy and gladness. Uncleanness will be absent, and holiness will reign. All of this where the negatives had flourished. The change, dramatic as it is, is explained in four simple words in verse 4. Your God will come. And when he comes, all will be right and all will be well. The sign of his immediate presence is peace. And peace Shalom is well-being. I didn't do anything here in terms of spelling out, but it could be done here. One of the things that's interesting about the word shalom is it means there's nothing lacking. If you uh, uh, have five children and five sons and daughters-in-laws like mine and nine grandchildren, when you get them all under the same roof and there's not one lacking, that's shalom. Now, if there's one lacking, that's not shalom. It's when it's all there. It's, there's a numerical character to it. Uh, you can keep on going, but it's a, it means all is well, all is functioning right, harmoniously. And there is no separation in shalom of the spiritual from physical or mental. The redemption is to be total, even inclusive of larger nature itself. Man's need is to return to the one he left, or better, for him who is now gone to come back to him. Again, we see the holism of the Old Testament. Another corollary is simply the same truth, perhaps, expressed in other words. The cure for man's evil is one. Let me turn again to Isaiah, to the most familiar passage in Isaiah to us, the great suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. And here we see what to me is a magnificent illustration of this. In this passage, man's sin is assumed by the sinless one. But the language used is inclusive of much more than what we call sin. 
In verses 5 and 6, we are told that he, and here I'd, I'd like to use the language of the King James, was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. And Yahweh laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now, you will notice that what we're talking about is what we subsume under the category of sin. The word is transgression. The Hebrew word means to step across a known law and to do violence to that known law. It is uh, breaking the law. The, uh, it, it, it speaks of our iniquities, the, the crookednesses, the twistednesses that come in man's life when he departs from God's way. He speaks of our transgressions and our iniquities personally, and then he speaks of the iniquity of us all universally. Christ took upon himself all these. But look back at the preceding verse, verse 4. There we are told, in the language of the King James, that he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. But if you look at the Hebrew, you will find that the word which the King James translators rendered grief is a very good Hebrew term for sickness. And in fact, it is the standard Hebrew term for sicknesses. The word translated sorrows is the Hebrew word for pain. And it is the standard Hebrew word for pain. Now, are these simply to be taken metaphorically? There's a lot of support that you could find in the Old Testament for the fact that these terms for physical disease should be taken metaphorically, and they're used for what we speak of as spiritual or moral disease. This could be supported from verse 5, where the conclusion is, we are told that it is with his stripes we are healed. So in the build-up you have uh, our sicknesses and our pains, our transgressions and our iniquities, our iniquity, and we're healed by his wounds or by his stripes. It must be acknowledged that the Old Testament often uses the language of physical healing to describe forgiveness, and spiritual restoration. But is this because physical healing and spiritual deliverance by some happy coincidence can be likened to each other? Or is it because there is an integral relationship between the two? The Old Testament seems clear on this. The negatives in the physical world originated with the entry of the spiritual negative. Both have a common origin. Both have a common cure. Both are ultimately one package. 
This explains two references in the New Testament to Isaiah 53 that it that once seemed to me to be contradictory. The first of these is in 1 Peter 2, 18-25. Peter is speaking of the fact that we should be willing to suffer even for doing good. We should not be surprised when we suffer for doing wrong, but when we suffer for doing right, we should not complain. Jesus suffered doing right and did not complain. Peter says, He who was without sin, he had never sinned, bore our sins in his own body in order that we might die to sins and live in in righteousness. Then he says, it is by his wounds that we are healed. Quoting Isaiah 53. Obviously the healing is from sin and its accompaniment. Does this mean that we should interpret the references in Isaiah 53 to sicknesses, pains, and healing metaphorically? I once wanted to go that way. Now there is, uh, uh, I found an interesting thing in Hebrew in, uh, in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. I've often heard that quoted in healing services. But the interesting thing is, that in the Hebrew you have something which cannot be seen in the English translation. The all thy diseases has a feminine possessive pronoun. The thy in all thy diseases is feminine. And it refers to soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The soul is the feminine element. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, and who healeth all thy soul's diseases. So you see, the Hebrew is not going to draw a sharp line here, the way we do, and the metaphorical use is common in the Old Testament. But, When you see it referring, linked that way, must it be taken metaphorically? Let me call your attention to the second reference, which troubled me for a while. It's in Matthew 8, 14 to 17. Isaiah 53 is quoted again. It's a magnificent passage to me now. It must be linked, chapter 8, with chapter 4. Because you have inserted in between the Sermon on the Mount. And chapter 8 picks up the argument of chapter 4. In chapter 4, Jesus is come proclaiming that the kingdom has come near. He teaches, he preaches, and he heals. I tend to think of the teaching as intellectual and the preaching as having a moral element and the healing as having a physical and perhaps mental 
His ministry brings deliverance to whom? To the disease, Matthew says, 4.23 to 25. To those that are in pain, to the demon-possessed, to the epileptic, and what the Greek says is to the moonstruck, to the, but probably it means epileptic and to paralytic. Now in chapter 8, he picks it up. In chapter 4, he has said, the kingdom has drawn near. In chapter 8, he cleanses a leper, restores a centurion servant from his paralysis, and frees him, the text says, from terrible torment. Now, the full inclusion of what's included in that uh, could take some discussion. Frees him from terrible torment. Then he heals Simon's mother-in-law of her fever. He then heals all the sick of the neighborhood that they bring in. And he delivers the local demoniac. Now, I have come to the place where I'm delighted for the reference to the local demoniac. Because up to that point, you predominantly have physical things that have been cared for. When you get to the demoniac, you obviously, I think, biblically, at least I feel, you have now broken from the physical to something that is inclusive of what we would consider under the category, perhaps, of, of spiritual. Now, Matthew's comment is that all that is taking place here in Jesus' ministry at this time is simply what should have been expected. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that he would do what? That he would take our infirmities, which really, in the passage he's quoting is, surely he has borne our grief, our sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, which is our pain. But the translation that we usually get is, he would take our infirmities and carry our diseases. Now, one of the complicating things for the uh, uh, biblical student is that when you come to the passage in Matthew, you don't have a quotation of the Hebrew in Greek. You have a quotation of the Septuagint. And whereas in Isaiah 53 in Hebrew, you have sicknesses and pain, the Septuagint translates it sin and diseases. So the Septuagint has already moved into a metaphorical interpretation of that. But Matthew coming along, seeing the healing taking place, says this is in clear-cut fulfillment of what was promised in Isaiah 53. In this context, Matthew obviously is not interpreting Isaiah 53 metaphorically. It must be noted quickly that demoniacs are included. The conclusion seems obvious to this writer that this is illustrative, that the Old Testament sees the whole problem of evil, moral and otherwise, 
It sees it whole. It all had a common cause. There is a common cure. One passage. This cast delightful light to me on the ministry of Jesus. Isaiah 35 tells us that the lame will walk, the blind will see, the dumb will speak, the deaf will hear. All of our problems will be solved when God comes to his people. I remember John the Baptist sent a messenger one day to Jesus. And he said, are you really the one we're looking for? And he says, well, you go back and tell John that the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the uh, demoniacs are being delivered, and the poor having the gospel preached to them. And I think John the Baptist in his prison cell said, Has Yahweh come to his people? Now, uh, my time's gone. I want to, I want to draw very quickly. May I take about three minutes here? Some things that out of this are beginning to shape up in my thinking. One, the primary thing to be said about man is that he's a person. This is at the heart, biblically, of the Imago Dei. And the philosophers and the theologians who've tried to find it in the rational or in the formal elements of man, I have a question about that anymore. But to be a person is to be incomplete. That even if you had a perfect person, the perfect person would be incomplete because to be a person by definition means to be incomplete. Here, the basis of my own thinking now is the Trinity. And I lived a long time before I saw this. There's nothing in the scripture that ever tells you that God is a person. And classical theology doesn't. But classical theology tells us that God is three persons. And if you'll read the passages of Jesus where he speaks about his relationship to his father, you will find that the second person of the Trinity was incomplete in himself. I do not think that is speaking simply about the human nature of Christ. His life as the second person of the Trinity was drawn out of the first. And his life which he drew out of the first, he lived for the one from whom his existence Personal life, then, is by nature a life of exchange. It is a giving and a receiving in which for a person to live, he must receive from others. And if he is to live fully, he must give himself to others. What happened in the garden was Eve and Adam cut off their relationship and tried to live within themselves. 
a denial of my need for others and of my need for others to need me is a repudiation of my true nature and is to live under illusion and against holistic reality. <laughs> against reality. So sin is any violation of this relationship and denial of it. Nowhere is the sinfulness of man more evident than in giving and receiving. I don't want to give what I ought to give. I want to keep it. And I don't want to be dependent upon you. I want to be autonomous. I don't want to receive from you. And so the giving and receiving, the exchange is broken, ruptured, or shadowed. A break in our necessary relationship touches all of our being when it comes. Mental, physical, as well as personal, or whatever language you want to use for it. And so, the inevitable result is that in my spirit there is an illusion which is extended to my mind and it is even extended to my body. And so my total life is affected because I am a person, inseparable and indivisible. Now, the answer to that is biblical shalom. And when am I whole? I am only whole in relation to others and having others rightly related to me. Sin, whether it are disease, whether it is physical or mental or spiritual, with all of its eruptions are simply evidence of our lack of shalom, of our fallenness, of our out of childrenness. For more information, contact Cricket Albertson at cricket.albertson at francisasburysociety.com.